You are listening to the Casting Shadows Podcast. This is another Reflections from the Road episode, special messages and call-ins edition. We'll return to our primary topic of this particular season of the broadcast, that of immersion and our cultures and practices of play, in the next episode. I felt it was important to answer these messages, and in particular, one exchange of messages between callers and participants on the show. We have call-ins on several topics, and because in the previous episode I said that this episode would be continuing on the topic of immersion, going into the next stage of that discussion, I'm going to begin with messages that relate to that topic, and then we'll go into the other topics. So, our first caller is Spencer, or Free Thrall, from Keep Off the Borderlands podcast. Hello, Anthony. Spencer here. I really enjoyed your episode on immersion and engagement. And while I was listening to you speak about the way people engage differently with things, it brought to mind a phenomena that I only learned about recently called aphantasia where people don't have a visual component to their thoughts if that makes sense they don't think visually and it's a concept that I really struggle to get my head around because I consider myself to be quite a visual thinker Um, although I'm sure there must be times when I'm thinking where there isn't necessarily a visual component, although even if I'm, you know, thinking numerically or or linguistically, I find myself conjuring up images of numbers and and words and struggling to get my head around that concept. I assumed that this would really hamper somebody's ability to enjoy certain things, memorizing stuff, reading, playing RPGs even. And I was surprised to learn that I play with somebody regularly who identifies as having a Fantasia and I play with them online, we play theatre of the mind, and it certainly doesn't appear to affect their ability to engage and immerse themselves in play. And still, it leaves me wondering how that's possible. And it's probably quite tangential to what you were talking about, but I think it really helps to illustrate just how differently we can experience things. I don't know if it adds anything to the discussion, but there you go. Thank you very much for that episode. Take care. Thanks for that call, Spencer. 
it's totally on target. I first heard of aphantasia as a result of uh, kind of a survey, kind of a discussion, kind of an investigation into how the members of a Facebook group that I run thought about imagination. The Facebook group is called the RPG Techniques Consortium. And it has moments of high activity and moments of low activity. It's had several different iterations made up of a whole variety of, of different kind of players, right? People who play single games or fixate on a, a small number of games and so therefore have a high level of familiarity and expertise with those games. And some of them have a lot of understanding of games that they don't play because they also have a hobby of reading about games, right? So they, they play just one or two games with often with the same people you know, for, for many, many years and they develop a high degree of skill. And also in the group are people who play a whole bunch of games and so therefore are familiar and have expertise with learning games but may or may not, depending, have you know, a high level of expertise with any given game in the palette that they choose. They may only play any given game once and then move on to something else. And, and that sort of thing. And then you have people uh, kind of more in, in my camp that grew up playing games and like to get into them very deeply and go back to them years later to see, you know, what's different, and try all the different editions, and, and that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a group made up of people to talk about role-playing game techniques, right? Not about the latest news, not about the latest fad or fashion or, or whatever, but how do I do the thing, right? Uh, crowd scenes, how can I you know, as, as a single person, how can I represent, how can I help people imagine that they are in, you know, uh, among a large group of, of NPCs is an example question that comes up, that kind of thing. So in the RPG Techniques Consortium, we talked about imagination and how you perceive your own imagination. And out of that investigation came reports of a Fantasia, which was my first uh, experience hearing it. So I've got nothing to add to your call about a Fantasia other than to confirm one more time that it's totally on topic, but we'll get to that in a minute. One additional thing that came up during that investigation was a group of players. They don't play with each other. They didn't know each other before the group. But as they described how they play in terms of imagination, it became obvious that imagination, in the sense of creating imagery in your mind, imagining how it looks, uh, imagining the, the vista, imagining the wonder, you know, filling your head with images imagination really wasn't a part of their play. This came out of a conversation 
about one of the cool things about role-playing games is that providing we get the details right, like I'm standing next to the stained glass window and you are standing next to the door and these objects in the room are on opposite sides of the room from each other and it's a rectangular room, right? As long as we get the details right, it doesn't matter. It's not necessary, although it can be fun to, describe exactly what the stained glass window looks like or exactly what the door looks like or exactly what kind of walls are in the room or what type of shelving is present exactly the coloration and and fabric choices for the furniture and the rugs it's one of the cool things about role-playing games so we're all free to imagine the insignificant details any way that we like and it reminds me that that expression of you know what color is the sky in your world which you know outside of role-playing games (laughs) is you know an insulting comment but inside of role-playing games is a legitimate comment like literally Describe for me what you imagined, what you saw. You know, how did you take my description as a game master or my description as a player? How did you take that and run with it and imagine something that can be a fun conversation at a coffee shop at three o'clock in the morning? So, I found it really interesting that this group would report play in reaction to that, where imagination didn't factor in. Now, how did they play? They played by being told by the game master what the situation was and then addressing the situation with what they thought was the appropriate way to handle it and then using the system to handle it and then you know the game master would clarify what the resulting situation was and they would repeat that process they would play but their play didn't involve imagining from the point of view of a character and their play didn't involve actually imagining the scene they simply the way I would describe it briefly is they processed the information of play they didn't play in character as character they were playing in what I would now describe as in character as player they weren't unduly focused on the rules. They weren't heavily focused on intentionally producing story. They weren't focused on performance. They weren't focused on any particular thing other than understanding what situation the characters were in, solving, let's use that expression, solving the problem, uh, or, you know, reacting appropriately or acting appropriately or interacting appropriately and then using the system if necessary and moving on. Really, really different from anything that that I had previously experienced. Now, I've probably played with people who did exactly that all throughout my time in gaming, but it hadn't become apparent or hadn't become obvious to me because outwardly we can't really see it. We might just feel that that person is shy or that person lacks confidence or that, you know, that person doesn't really want to uh, portray or embody or experience their, their character as the character. They would rather talk to you as a player and, you know, that can be 
totally normal. And so the the details or the, the motivations or reasonings behind the way that they communicate and the way that they interact with the game uh, can be completely hidden until some unusual detail or some conversation in some other context brings it out that although we're at the same table playing the same game, we might not be doing it the same way. And so your story of one of the players of your acquaintance having a Fantasia, but unless you were told, I'm gathering, you wouldn't really notice, uh, rings really true for me. And I think it's really important when we think about immersion because somebody that you're playing with right now could be deeply immersed in some fashion, in some aspect of play or in multiple aspects of play. And it's entirely possible that you wouldn't know. And I think it's erroneous to dismiss the immersive state out of hand. And uh, I think it's important if we care and if we're interested in developing some kind of skill or some kind of methodology for play or we want to enhance some aspect of our culture of play that we need to talk about it. And so the next call is going to tie into this thread of things really tightly. But before I get there, I just want to make an addendum about the people I was describing from the RPG Techniques Consortium who chose, or maybe didn't choose, who just developed a culture of play and developed tools for play that really don't involve imagining the scene, regardless of their ability to imagine the scene. They had never considered the idea of immersion, really, either disregarding it or never having heard about it, depending on on their experience and exposure to things. But those who had heard the talk about it, of course, heard the mainstream talk about immersion, which focuses so heavily on imagining what your character sees and being swept away, you know, into the other world as if, you know, you're no longer in in this world, you know, in the kind of hyperbolic way it can be described in places like RPGNet or whatever. And they just disregarded it out of hand because they don't embody character and they're not focused on kind of zooming in and having that immersive experience in the world or in a scene or in their in their character's perspective. It's not an experience for them really at all. And so they just assumed that they didn't do it. Which kind of denies them the ability to embrace or, or seek out or engage with any immersive experiences they might be having. You know, they know that role-playing games are fun, but they you know, might not recognize that this particular session was so much fun because they were immersed in their play. They were swept up by it. They didn't really notice the passage of time. They didn't care about uh, state switching. They didn't care about all the things that normally distract us. They were totally involved with their play. And, uh, and I think it's therefore important, like one of our other callers later on in the episode will stress. I think it's really important to reinforce 
anyone you find that's talking about immersion broadly in terms of it being a flow state or a state of engagement or a state of enjoyment, uh, a state of focused attention, rather than simply it being what it would be really cool to experience, that of, you know, seeing through your character's eyes. Anyway, thanks again for the call. It's a great one, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do so. Now, there are more calls, so instead of these really long responses, <laughs> let's move on. This next call is a first message from this caller. It's a person I have encountered first on Discord and have enjoyed the interactions there and on Blue Sky. This, as a first call, is epic and one I'm really enjoying getting into. But first, I'm going to share it with you. Anthony, this is uh, Dark Fluid. What excellent timing for an episode. I've been sort of culminating some thoughts over the last several episodes that you've done in my head, including watching Eloy's series on YouTube. And I was trying to formulate a way to call in about what was coming to mind and the concepts I was exploring. It took a while for me to sort through them and to get to the root of what it was that was forming in my mind. And But, you know, at that point, I had wanted to call in, but I didn't really have a sense that where your podcast had been going, it was really relevant, or at least directly relevant to the subjects that you were discussing. It was instead more of on a different tangent. But this episode was exactly in line with where my mind had been going while listening to you and your co-host's last several episodes. So I'm going to attempt to put those together in a coherent way and see if they're relevant. One of the things I'm glad you brought up is the concept of flow, not just in character, but in world. Um, For example, I had a recent con game where it it got a bit gonzo, um, and the emergent story that resulted was a bit ridiculous so while we were someone inhabiting our characters I don't think anyone at the table was doing so in the in the manner that most people would imagine and discuss when inhabiting a character in that flow state Um, but we were definitely inhabiting the world we were able to riff easily move through situations and just have emergent gameplay flow out of us in a way that was relevant and in sync with the world that was being created around us, including the tone and the, if you will, laws of nature of the game. But what I really want to talk about is the conditions for this flow state to occur, because I had found recently that I couldn't readily engage it, and I was searching for the reason why. Um, RPG A Day helped me explore and think of some past situations and, and really was helpful to me in trying to come up with reasons why I could and could not and explore those. Um, in addition, listening to the podcasts that have been going on um, have really opened my mind to a lot of the reasons for that. 
And I want to break this into two different places, and sometimes they overlap, enablers and blockers of flow. Um, and I think you've already explored some of these, so forgive me if this is duplicating some of what you've already mentioned. The first enabler I can think of is collaborative world building. Um, I, I think that to some level, and there are various levels of collaborative world building, this has helped enable me in the past. Um, it causes discussions amongst players and the GM, and it helps lead to an understanding of the world and characters. I think it also leads to the next point, out-of-game conversations about minor and major aspects of the world. This is something I used to do when I was younger. We would discuss the game all week, and I think that would do two things. It would keep our minds somewhat in the world, and also, for some of us, help keep our minds in that creative state. I think both of these two enablers lead to an understanding of the lore and history of the world, which is another enabler that allows us to have a shared truth or perception or perceived truth um, of the world in which our characters engage. And that allows us to speak through our characters um, in the character's voice with confidence um, that we know what the character knows, that we know what would be normal to the character, how the character would perceive it, um, at least what would be in scope for a player to assert. I think all of these can be somewhat accomplished with the use of a good session zero. Um, I think that helps. I'm just wondering if there are some other tools out there to help build on these things and help encourage this during gameplay. But I want to get back to session zero later. Let's first discuss a couple blockers that became apparent to me. An unsurety about the character's place in the world or the rules of the world. And if you notice, there's crossover here because a lot of my enablers were helping to remove this blocker. Um, player knowledge is frequently much more limited than the character's knowledge of the world. If there is not a shared lore, um, and I find this this blocks flow because it provides an unsurety, even if it's subconscious, to someone's ability to speak out and begin to simply speak as character. I think there are some advantages, and I think this is why some people prefer to play games with established lore that they know. It gives them more confidence in knowing that they can speak as their character. But there's certainly ways around that for GM-built campaigns and games. I think another blocker is anything that distracts your mind from the creative state. So this can be a lot of things. Issues outside of the game, personal issues um, leading into the game, um, distractions from players or others at the table, which is constantly discussed. Um, some people, For some people, it's complex rules, things where they have to stop and engage the game at the rules layer um, and this can pull them out of it I think the other thing is for some players their mind is not able to get into that creative state and they need some exercises to prime the pump to get them into that they might find at the beginning of a game session that they are not in the creative state and have problems in getting into that flow state but later in the game they fall into it this is where for me personally, some of those enablers are conversations throughout the week or being able to be involved in collaborative world building. It 
any level um, that really gets my mind just in that mode from the beginning. But it's different for everyone. I think the last thing is one that strikes me, and it may not strike anyone else in the world, but whenever I'm inhabiting the character like that, and this is the one that, as an aside, I most recently discovered and couldn't figure out, but sometimes I feel a bit self-conscious or a bit vulnerable. Now, that can be, for some players, I would imagine, due to the environment of the game. The game and the players that they're playing with isn't geared towards emergent play, so they don't want to be the ones standing out. Or it could be because they don't know and trust the people they're gaming with. Um, Or it could be, in my case, where it is simply uh, an internal issue. Um, This could be something related to self-confidence issues or any other kind of doubts. Um, For some players, things like X cards, lines, and veils could help, but for someone like myself, it's just simply being aware of it and powering through it. (laughs) Now, it could be a combination of factors in any one thing, a combination of blockers, enablers, Um, but I don't believe that all of these things have to be accounted for in order to enter that flow state. For example, the con game I was talking about, we had a ton of distractions. Um, It was being held at a shared table in a hallway. People were walking by. Um, People were laughing. There were things that are all over the place, but we were all easily in that state because we had enough of what we needed. So the first thought that comes to mind is perhaps during session zero, if the discussion comes up that this is the desired mode of gameplay, that we could find with a little bit of effort if there are any particular blockers for the players at the table and particular things that enable them to enter that state more easily. Obviously, um, it's going to differ for everyone, but if we can note those things and all agree to them at the table, we might find there's a lot of overlap and therefore a very short list indeed. I think it's critical that we don't turn this into some gigantic list of do's and don'ts which could prevent gameplay from being relaxed and fun as I think that itself could be a distraction. Obviously all of this is optional as I've enjoyed games without being in that state and I think there's a time and place for games that are not concerned with that particular mode of play if you will. Um, But I'm curious to see uh, what everyone else's thoughts are and particularly thoughts on things that can be done during gameplay itself without previous discussions that they have found just in general help facilitate that level of play. As I said, that is a juicy call. Now I know I said this would be a reflections from the road and technically I'm still on the road but also technically I'm not because I'm outside of the car and I'm up in the mountains in an area kind of famous for uh, Buddhist retreats and and temples, but also for cafes and dog cafes. And I'm at a dog cafe with Grace, our Doberman, May, our mystery dog, Kaylee, our foster golden retriever, and Kobe, our English setter. And they are tearing up the place, just being puppies, although Kobe's nine 
Grace is five, but uh, Kaylee is one, only one, and May is two. So they've got the most energy, but it's hilarious to see them play. But this isn't about that. One of the things that I think about when I watch them play is what I thought about when listening to Dark Fluid's call. And that's really invested play requires a certain amount of confidence. And I don't mean the standing up in front of people giving a speech kind of confidence, although it's related. I just mean the things that Dark Fluid mentioned in the call, that certainty of time and place and character, certainty about the rules and the tone and all of these things. So, as you heard him, he asked for different ways that achieving this level of confidence, this level of certainty or surety, can be achieved other than, you know, a formalized sitting around the table to have a session zero conversation, which might not cover everything, or people might not get or hear or connect with or recognize how to do and might lack the confidence and certainty that it's okay to ask about what you mean. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. For me, the idea of a session zero is one that I have adopted as an easy thing to, to use as a term, but I don't tend to have a singular session zero. We do have what amounts to a session zero, but long after we've started the session zero process. You know, we talk about whether or not we're going to play the game. We talk about how we're going to play the game. But these are conversations that we have early. It takes weeks or sometimes months for us to reach the point where it's time to have that kind of official bring everybody together, take a look at the characters or make the characters, finalize when we're going to play and the methodology we're going to use for play, like we're going to play on Zoom and record, or we're going to play in Zoom and not record, or we're going to play in person, that kind of stuff. It takes us a while to get there. So it's a, a long, drawn-out process, and during that process, we start talking about the genre and the tone we want to achieve and the type of characters we want to use and how those characters will interact and the ways in which whoever's running it is going to run it, let's say, raw. And that includes, you know, the, the setting material or if they're going to change something or add something or remove something or limit the scope. If it's going to be a vanilla experience, like the fresh out of the core book only experience, or if some sort of supplementary material is going to be included. All of these things. It's not a difficult process. It's not a time-consuming process, but it doesn't all happen at once. Now, in a convention context, how can all of that be compressed is a pretty interesting experience or pretty interesting question. Or in the context of people that you don't know yet, you've just set up your new group. I think there's a lot to talk about there. How can this type of information be presented in a short enough time that you don't lose the momentum of starting the group or you don't lose the excitement of wanting to play a particular new game, you know? 
with my groups, we are well established. We've been playing together for years and we are in the habit of playing different games and we're in the habit of playing them in this way. So it's a part of our momentum. But outside of that context, it has to be faster. It has to be more efficient and have more punch. And so I'll second the question, how can we do it? Anyway, awesome, awesome call. I know there's things that I'm missing there, but here in this on-the-road context, that's what I have for now. I'm going to listen to it again and possibly attach an addendum. Oh dear God, I hear you saying, it's already so long. The next message came in from SpeakPipe and is by Che Webster of the excellent Roleplay Rescue podcast and blog. I communicate most often with Che on his blog, but I am hoping to be able to talk with him in a more conversational style like we did a few episodes ago about this topic and some others. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's listen to Che's first message first. Hey there, Anthony. It's uh, Che from Roleplay Rescue. I just wanted to really phone in and say thank you very much for recent episodes. Uh, your episode, Immersion and Engagement, I think was what it's called, which had loads of call-ins from Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Uh, I really appreciated listening to that. It was really good. It was lots of great comments in there. And of course, your general kind of opening question of like, what do we mean by immersion and all of that kind of conversation stuff is of interest to me. So I wanted to make sure that you were aware that, you know, I was listening and I was enjoying it and uh, just to say a big thank you. I'm not really sure what I can add to the discussion that I haven't already, uh, apart from to say that you're absolutely right that there are many, many, many forms of immersive activity. And, you know, that's why I'm always careful to distinguish it with other world immersion in terms of like the world itself and character immersion, rules immersion and other such terms. For me, it's really important to be distinct about those things. And, um, you know, there are lots of different elements to that that I, I play around with anyway, at least personally. There was one bit in the episode I wasn't entirely sure, this idea of double-blind gaming. And, like, um, me being me, I'm not entirely sure I understand what that is. And I thought it might have been useful for you and or Jason to uh, sort of define that for the purposes of those who don't know. Um but, of course, I think I might have played some double-blind games in the past. I think I might have played some war games in that way, for example. Um, and so, yeah, if you could clarify the definition, then I would be in a position to be able to tell you whether I have any experience of that and anything I can add to that conversation as well. Um, I think sometimes it's very easy. I don't, I, I, you know, no problem really, but I think it's very easy for us to assume that uh, people out there know the term or maybe that was the point. Maybe you only wanted people who are absolutely sure that was what they were doing. I mean, the thing is that that terminology may not be used by every gamer. So, yeah, I just wanted to sort of ask, I suppose. I hope that's okay. Thank you so very much for everything that you do. And I hope we can get to have a conversation again sometime soon as well. I, I really appreciate that. And for now, well, game on. Jay, thanks so much for the call. I think that if people go and listen to Roleplay Rescue, they're going to hear some fantastic examples of talking about immersion. <laughs> I want to suddenly, I suddenly I want to say immersively, talking about immersion immersively, but talking about immersion 
as a whole subject rather than the, as I pointed out in the in the episode, the character-focused episode of Immersion. In my response to Spencer, I was talking about a bunch of people who played in a way that I hadn't quantified until I did a you know an actual survey before. I didn't notice playing with people who approached play that way until I noticed it in this conversation about imagination. And they pretty much as a group assumed about themselves that either immersion doesn't exist or that they had never or could never play immersively because they bought into the common notion that immersion was you know, being lost in the other world as your character and not being aware of the actual world around you. You don't know that you're at the table anymore. Kind of a, a very dramatic version, a very extreme version of of the flow state in a very specific you know, type of the experience. You know, in character, as character, and nothing else. <laughs> So they'd never really paid attention to much discussion about immersion or discarded it out of hand. But I think it's very likely that at least some of them, because they're human, had had immersive experiences with their gameplay independent of how they play differently from others who talk about immersion more. I guess is what I want to say. But anyway, thanks for calling in. It's awesome. And like I said at the beginning of this response, if you haven't, for some reason, been listening to the 12 seasons of Roleplay Rescue, it's definitely something to do. Not only for the content, but also as an example of how to explore our own thinking. Anyway, Jay definitely... We'll have a conversation soon. Oh, I almost forgot to define double blind. So this term, uh, as I have come up using it, means that we have you know a, a, a war game in motion, and rather than having the two players using the same the same board or the same map or whatever. They each have their own, and they cannot see the other person. This is the the two blind players, or two blind teams, or factions, or whatever. They can't see the other map, so they they know the distribution of their their own units, let's say, and they can see the map as well as they can see the map, and they can see some of the enemy units, but not others, or they can notice some types of movement but not others. They can recognize some type of orders being given but not others. And this control of information is handled by a referee or by a game master in between uh, the two players. So ideally this would be taking place in two completely different rooms. So you cannot hear what's going on with the other player and you cannot see what's going on with the other player and the game master gets exercise moving back and forth between <laughs> between the two rooms so it's a double blind game
So I've used this a lot in Starfleet battles, particularly when you are playing with the Romulans with their cloaking devices, and I use it a lot in Battletech for all kinds of things, like the placement of you know, anti-vehicle mines or hidden groups of infantry or mechs hidden inside buildings and, and stuff like this. Uh, just adds a little bit of spice. Now, of course, you're doubling the requirements of everything. You need to have twice as many representations of the units. You need to have twice as many maps. You need to have twice as many spaces and tables and all this stuff. But uh, often, the experience is worthwhile. Now, uh, what I believe Jason was talking about was being presented with situations where decisions needed to be made and you know the, the different players would be kept isolated from each other so they don't know what orders are being issued and, and they don't know what each unit might be experiencing or, or reporting. Uh, everything is filtered through uh, a referee. So all the different players uh, or, or factions or, or whatever in the game uh, have a different information flow. So that's the double-blind game. I hope that helps and, uh, and I'm very curious as always, about what you or others have done with this type of gaming. And my original question still stands. All right, here's where we begin our transition. All right. So our next message also comes from Che. It came later. It's been a while since I've put out an episode. It's been a while since these messages started coming in. So in this message from Che, we talk a little bit about the very last episode, the preceding episode, where we talked about RPG a day, and we took some calls, and we talked about Hollow Earth Expedition. So let's transition from the previous kind of focus of immersion and engagement. Let's put that on the shelf for a little bit until the next episode, and now go on with some of the more current topics. Hey Anthony, it's Che calling from Roleplay Rescue. Just wanted to thank you for your recent uh, musings on the road. Although I've got to be honest and say I, I sometimes worry about people driving and talking and recording. So I don't know how you do that. <laughs> anyway, um, I just want to say thank you. If you're, it, I didn't think listening to you talk about uh, RPG A Day 2023 and reflecting on it would be interesting, but it was. And so I'm really grateful that you did that. And also, I didn't think that you describing the Hollow Earth Expedition game um, and sort of telling us a little bit about that would be interesting, but it was. Uh, and I have a question related to Ubiquity. The first question to ask is like, if I wanted to understand Ubiquity better, where's the best place to start? So I don't know, um, in all of your material, you've probably done lots of stuff about it. So where would be a good place to start? That would be a lovely thing to find out. Um, but also, uh, I was kind of curious about like how you get a big battle in about five to ten minutes. So that would be interesting to know. So all those questions aside, I just want to say again, big thank you and wish you well. Game on. Thanks for those words of support, Jay. It means a lot you know it's it's not everybody who will listen to something they think is probably not going to be interesting and i think more often than not that effort is often rewarded with something that is not interesting 
thereby teaching us not to listen to things which we are worried won't be interesting. So I'm glad you were able to push through that and that it didn't wind up being a punishment for you. And by letting me know you've completed the circuit of satisfaction and so I can be satisfied that I made something that was not painful for you. So thanks a lot. I appreciate that. It's a very rare situation. I think we we don't get much feedback in this kind of activity, this hobby of podcasting about our other hobbies. Well, to answer your question about ubiquity, I have already answered that privately with you, but I thought I would share it publicly here in case someone had the same question. I have an extensive playlist on the YouTube channel which goes into not all the details of the system, but a lot of the areas where I've received questions about it, uh, where new game masters of it have you know asked me about you know, how do you do this or how does that work or you know, that kind of thing, and from the old days when there used to be a lot of very active ubiquity forums you know for each game, the most common questions I, I made videos that kind of addressed those topics. So there's a one hour long review that goes into everything. Uh, the the different products that existed at the time I made the review, the different dice and dice options uh, with examples of how they work. There's a complete tutorial on the the core rules of the system, and you know it's it's pretty detailed. And like I said, it's an hour long. There's also a similar similarly long interview with the creator of uh, the Ubiquity role playing system. After that, in the playlist, there are a number of topical short videos on specific parts of the rules, like magic or followers or using resources, uh, experience points, that kind of thing. That kind of thing, like specifically focused on on rules and rules that are different between the games for reasons of setting or genre. You know, the, the magic in Quantum Black is different from the magic in All for One, which is different from the magic in Desolation, which is different from the magic in Hollow Earth Expedition and Leagues of Adventure, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a fairly extensive playlist, and it also includes some actual play videos so you can see it in action and that kind of thing. So. For those who are interested in Ubiquity, you can find that on my YouTube channel. There's a couple of different Ubiquity playlists. Some are actual plays of specific games, and then the Ubiquity role-playing system playlist has a collection of these types of videos. So I hope that is of interest to people who are curious about Ubiquity. These are on my list of, of things to redo now that technology has moved on a bit. And now that there's you know more publications and, and things to add in, but uh, that's quite a daunting project. So we'll see if that happens. <laughs> so forgive the older technology of the videos if you do end up watching them. Your second question about how ubiquity can be fast, even if you're doing a, a mass battle. Um, to answer briefly, it's that ubiquity was designed to be fast, to enable kind of over-the-top pulp heroic style action without 
overburdening the game master with a lot of a lot of details. So the way that the rules communicate the system to the reader who's trying to learn the system will teach a lot of procedure and provide systems which have been streamlined for speed, for pattern recognition, uh, and for ease of use, that sort of stuff. Right down to the point where it removes actual physical steps that we traditionally expect to be there. Like, the Game Master can roll dice if they want to, but they don't need to. Dice rolling uh, is quite quick. All the, all the rolls for something like combat are opposed and the result will be the value of the effect. So in combat, that's the easiest to explain. You know, character A gets four successes to attack and character B gets two successes to defend, so character B takes two health levels of damage. So it's very it's, it's always very simple math with small numbers and the system, like I said, has been streamlined to reduce what kind of modifiers you need to handle and sometimes strip them out completely and put them into how the character sheet is, is written in the first place. So that as soon as you know what your character can do and as soon as the Game Master is comfortable with what the opposition that they're using does... And it doesn't take very long to, to reach this level of comfort and familiarity with ubiquity. As soon as that comfort with the system has been achieved, then you find that it just moves really, really fast. And you find yourself surprised. Like every group I've talked to found how surprised they were at how much they were able to get done in their normal amount of play, let's say they're a group that plays for only two hours or four hours, how much they could do while playing Ubiquity compared to how much they could do playing you know, most other games was significantly more. And the reason for that is that the moving parts of the system that normally slow us down just don't. Uh, and they, they don't without sacrificing the effect of rolling the dice. Like, you can be confident that if, as the game master, you don't roll and simply take the average, meaning uh, taking the statistical probability of success as true, if you just you know take five successes on ten dice, then you know you aren't sacrificing uh, what really would have happened. Because quite honestly, if you roll ten dice, you're going to get five successes and. Really rarely, you'll get four or six, <laughs> you know. So as the Game Master, sometimes when you're in the mood and you have the mental bandwidth, you can roll and add in that little, that little tweak of excitement. But if you're pressured or if it's a new kind of creature or if you really want to describe this well, that kind of stuff, you can put all that to the side. You don't have to deal with it. You can just apply it and focus on the thing that is fun and interesting for you. And that keeps mood and motivation up. It keeps the atmosphere up because you're able to focus on things like description and interaction better. And uh, and so the thing just keeps moving faster and stays moving faster over the whole course of play.
So that's my experience with it. And uh, that's the sh- <laughs> that's the too long short answer. <laughs> anyway, thanks again for the call. I really appreciate it. This next message is a response not to me, but to Jason Connerly of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. This is a message in response to his call-in about my conversation with Umbermancer about story mode D&D and dungeon crawl mode D&D, which we used as an example, you know, a practical real-world example to talk about the difference or to demonstrate how we can make use of the difference that playing for story as product or story as byproduct will have on a playgroup. So you don't need to hear me talk about it. That's why we have this message. So, Jason, I hope you're listening. Here's Umbermancer, Aloy Centro. Hi, Jason. Uh, thanks for your comment. And I think you hit upon the solution, which is, of course, uh, to have multiple characters show up and join the party. Now, this solution works best in dungeon crawl mode, right? As long as we're still doing what it is that we're doing, new people can join. But the problem comes when you do more story mode focused play, where the story is a little bit more personal to you. And so linking your new character to the personal story can become difficult. And so you find yourself doing things like, uh, this is, you know, my character's cousin just came in, right? And so the concept I propose or the solution or one of the solutions that I propose is what I call the meta character. And this serves to help you bridge um, that gap, right? As the story becomes more or as the game becomes more story mode, will allow you to transfer the story elements to your new character. And so it's nothing more than a formalized version of troop play, right? So I show up to your game instead of with one character with three. And so this is nothing nothing new, except that what I do is I try to plan before the game start uh, what the links are between my potential characters. And so uh, that becomes my meta character. So what what any personalized story, whatever personalized story develops is linked to my meta character rather than to my individual character. And so for example, uh, we played a game in uh, with Ivan Mike called Lamentations of the Martian Princess. And so I wanted to play a wizard, and so I decided I would throw, uh, show up with three different wizards, and so, uh, you know, to, to, to serve as backup characters. And then I thought, well, I need to link them together somehow. And so I came up on the idea that all three were apprentices to a single master mage, right? The mage Serosthenes. And so all three apprentices were, uh, were taught by the same master mage who's now disappeared. Right, and so Ivan took the story of this missing mage and wove it into the campaign. But what this means is, if my first player character dies, 
then one of my backup characters, who's also an apprentice of this guy, can show up and say, well, you know, I'm also looking for my missing master. And so now they have a personal reason to continue the quest. And so this concept can be used, you know, personally for my three characters, but in the case of the, the apprentices of Therosthenes, this idea was well received by the rest of the players to the point where they started linking their characters to the, the house of Serosthenes. And so the fighters became um, uh, uh, guards and mercenaries in the employ of the household of the missing mage, right? And uh, all sorts of different characters linked together. And so play became about the survival of the house of Serosthenes. And so in, in a similar fashion, you can imagine uh, multiple meta characters, multiple constructs. You can have noble houses like they do in Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin. Um, you could have a mercenary company um, and everybody plays a mercenary within the company. And so, you know, the assignments handed out by a noble patron are not handed out to a nebulous party of whoever shows up, but rather to a formalized uh, entity, this, uh, say, the company of the raven, right? And so if individual members die, you can always say, well, in the next town, you meet up with some other members of the company and they take up the quest. We've done this successfully also in Ivan Mike's uh, Hyperborea game, where we play a barbarian clan, the clan of the Iron Eagle. And so everybody plays a member of this tribe. And so when somebody dies, they can just pick up uh, a new member of the tribe. And so everything becomes instantly personal to, to the tribe. We're playing Blade Runner. And so, you know, the Blade Runner unit of the police department is the meta character. So, you know, one detective dies or one detective is captured, you can always assign a new detective. But the case that needs to be solved, the murder mystery or the crime or whatever it is, is not being solved by individuals who met in a tavern, right? They're being uh, investigated by a, a formalized entity, in this case, the Blade Runner division of the Los Angeles police, right? And so uh, this is a simple idea. Again, you can play in an individual basis, three apprentices linked to the same master. Uh, if you're playing a fighter, you could be a veteran from a, a unit that fought in a war, say in the Ninth Legion, right? And so your next character could be uh, someone who served uh, in the same unit as your, you know, the, your character that now has died. And so this provides you uh, with a justification, a fictional justification to add a new character without having to improvise it on the spot once you have the character and, you know, how do I get this character to care? Can you do it in this fashion, you know, sort of after the fact, come up with the idea? Of course. But if you plan it beforehand, I think it works better for everyone involved, for you and for the rest of the group. Now, once you get this meta character idea down, you can start playing with it in a different fashion. You could, for example, uh, decide on the manner of play 
or the meta character that is to be used and the GM, if he likes the idea, can design the campaign around this. So for example, if you want to play, say a prince uh, whose father has been killed and his uncle has taken over the country, well, you can always play, you know, the banished prince trying to regain his crown, right? And so you can organize the rest of the party, say that, well, the rest of the players play the entourage of this prince. Maybe somebody plays a cleric and they're the confessor to the prince. Uh, somebody plays a fighter and it's the bodyguard of the prince. Um, and you plan this beforehand, right? And maybe you have the idea that you're playing the clown, uh, the, the, clown, uh, the crown prince, um, but what if he's killed? Well, maybe you plan a little meta character for that and say you, your main character is the crown prince, but you also have a backup character who is a younger prince, uh, a second in line to the throne. Or perhaps there's a bastard son who can serve as your third backup character should the first two die. And so this adds longevity. And if everybody buys into the idea, the entire party can be focused around this goal. And so this helps the game master design a campaign that is more story mode as opposed to you all meet in a tavern and you want to go exploring because adventuring is fun. And again, no value judgments assigned. Uh, dungeon crawl mode is just as fun as story mode. It's just we, I, I feel like we need tools to modify the experience to better accommodate story mode. So thanks. Bye-bye. last topic to address in this message and response based reflection from the road episode is about the hollow earth expedition game that i recently ran and you heard che allude to in the previous message our transitionary message and was one of the subjects in the previous episode my experience of running it so i've gotten two call-ins about uh, my description of play so I'm going to play them both together. The first will be from Jason Connerly of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, and the second will be from Joe Richter of Hindsightless. And once we've listened to both of those gentlemen, then I'll reply to them. Hey, Jason here. Just listen to your latest Reflections on the Road. Great, great episode. I would be very happy to help in any way I can with RPG A Day. So don't... Don't hesitate to call on me as early or last minute as is needed. The Hollow Earth Expedition game you ran for us, I greatly enjoyed. You did a great job. You know, all of us in that game have been GMs. And, you know, some of us GM more than others. But the thing is, we all understand tech not working or or your plans at the last minute not working and so it's not a problem, really. We, we <laughs> there was no judgment there, and we were fine. Well, well, you, now, it wasn't your plan, but we were perfectly happy to entertain ourselves with, with Banner while you were working on the files, and 
I, I think all of us really enjoyed that game. That's what I took out of that game and took from talking to the other players afterwards. So please don't feel bad about any of that. That kind of thing happens to all of us. If you listen to any of our podcasts, you'll hear us talk about times that tech has just screwed up and, and you know, we felt a session went horribly, but our players still enjoyed it. So please don't feel too bad about that. It just, it happens. But you did give us a great experience. And I look forward to further exploring Ubiquity in the future. So I, I just wanted to let you know that. And I, I think you probably already knew that, but I, but I think it's good to verbalize it. So thank you again for, for running that game. What's going on, Anthony? Just finished listening to your latest episode where you talk about that game of Hollow Earth Expedition that you ran for Jason, Carl, BJ, and myself. And so, yeah, I just had a few things to say. First and foremost, I want to say thank you. Thank you for running an amazing game, man. That was, I had such, such a fun time. Uh, Second, I, you know, as somebody who's had countless tech issues when trying to run games online or even play in games online i could feel i could feel the frustration man and my heart was just breaking for you um you know i'd love to say that i don't let those sort of tech issues bug me anymore uh when i'm running games and i can't do what i want to do but i'd be a liar if i said that (laughs) they do bug me still but, you know, it's the price we have to pay for being able to play with people all over the world. And it's a price I'm willing to pay, you know. Um, but, yeah, I also found it really interesting when you talked about how sort of the conceit of Hollow Earth Expedition is for the the characters to basically start off in the Hollow Earth and then work their way out. Because when I was reading the book, when I was reading Hollow Earth Expedition, the game does such an amazing job of laying out what's going on all over the world in a bunch of different countries in the mid to late 30s, laying out the time period that I got the impression that it was sort of like uh, globe trotting uh, Indiana Jones type game where you work to get into the Hollow Earth and then maybe then get out as well. But so, yeah, but like you said, you could run the game in a bunch of different ways. So thank you so much for introducing me to Ubiquity. Thank you for running that game. Thanks to the dudes who played with me. It was awesome. Uh, And thank you for taking care of all those dogs, dude. That's amazing, man. That's very cool. In my show, when I sign off, I say take care of yourself and somebody else. Dogs are absolutely included in that somebody else. So thank you for that. I'm going to get out of here. Talk to you soon. Oh, yeah. That game you mentioned, the Ubiquity game where you're playing as a modern-day Special Forces fighting Cthulhu. (laughs) That might have to be what we do next. Anyway, peace out. Okay. I'm out of the car. I've dropped the dogs off at home, and I get to walk to the store. So, as I do that, I just want to let you know I'm doing it with a thankful heart. I want to thank Joe and Jason for taking the time to call in and with their empathetic, sympathetic response and remind me that things break down. (laughs) The center will not hold. And yes, it's not my first time to have a session not go as planned or not start as planned or you know, for tech to let me down. 
but it's still nice to hear support from the people who played with you. Anyway, so gents, I appreciate you taking the time to do that. And Jason, thanks for the offer to participate in anything we might need for RPG a day. That's awesome, and I will be in touch. Joe, to answer your question about Hollow Earth Expedition and the conceit, uh, that's just me not being as clear as I could have been. I don't... I didn't mean the game Hollow Earth Expedition per se. I meant the core book. Uh, the initial core book has pretty much everything you need to play in the Hollow Earth. There is an expansion called Mysteries of the Hollow Earth, which adds a whole lot more to that. And if you wanted to play on the surface, you could do that too. And there's an expansion that is called Secrets of the Surface World, which gives you a whole lot more for doing that. What the core book contains in, I think is just the right amount, is a history, a sense of the world, a sense of the organizations, a sense of the, the creatures and, and what uh, equipment and characters might be like to have that titular experience of the Hollow Earth Expedition. And you can branch out from there. So that's really what I meant. The game line itself, yeah, it totally lets you go anywhere and do anything, even to Mars. So we've got Hollow Earth Expedition, the original core book, which is followed by Secrets of the Surface World, which was then followed by Mysteries of the Hollow Earth, and then finally by Revelations of Mars. There's also collections of the different adventures. There are adventures set in the Hollow Earth. There's adventures set on the surface world. And, well, maybe there'll be adventures set on Mars. Anyway, I think this episode has gone long enough, so I want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Casting Shadows podcast. And until the next time, take care. Last time, our intrepid test pilot's secret base in the Florida Keys was attacked. German agents must have discovered the location. As unusually designed Stukas dive-bombed the tarmac, our heroes raced to get to their test planes. Well-trained pilots, they already knew that their test planes were no match for the operational capacity of the enemy fighters, but they had no choice. They had to pursue. Plus, they had one ace up their sleeves. Their squadron researcher had installed a new device, the ADAR, the Aerial Detection Automation Receiver. Although they lacked the top speed of the German aircraft, they could still pursue. We join them now in the air over the Florida Keys, racing northward in hot pursuit of the deadly squadron of villainous aircraft. But first, a word from our sponsor. Friends, do you have trouble sleeping at night? Well, those days are over. Take yourself down to your local pharmacist and ask for Sleep Away. That's right, Sleep Away, spelled just like it sounds. And ask for Sleep Away, and you will sleep all those troubles away. Try Sleep Away today.